0: Welcome. Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation
1: of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Internal Ghosh. Award-winning author, investor, and advisor
2: to global leaders. In this week's episode of Impact Unicorns, I'm delighted to share a fascinating dialogue with you. In the days leading up to COP26, I was privileged to be part of a green finance panel at the Coptimism event in Glasgow. The conference brought together the world's most purpose-driven brands, industry leaders, academics, environmentalists, and the finance community, all with one aim – to drive forward the action that is needed to fix the climate emergency. After a World Wildlife Fund report in 2019 found that UK banks and asset managers collectively financed projects that admitted 805 million tons of greenhouse gases, the finance industry needs to evolve if the UK has any chance of meeting its Paris Agreement obligations. But how is it going to do this? Well, listen to this episode to find out.
0: Uh, hi everyone, uh, I'm, I'm Mark Hannigan, and this is the Sustainable Finance and Investment panel. Uh, I'd like to introduce my fellow panellists before we show a short video. So on my right we have uh, Indra Nel Ghosh, the CEO of Tiger Hill Capital. Then Diane Essen of Bailey Gifford. Next is Manish Karani of MVK Group. And finally, William Stormont of Eight Hours Ahead. What we what we want to try and achieve today is to dig, in, dig into and explore the process of putting our money, our collective money, where our mouth is, so to speak, with the commitments that are going to be made at COP um, over the next two weeks and also to to try and uh, inform those of you who are not of a financial background what it's going to take to make these massive investments a reality. So I'm going to lean on the expertise of the panel here to help you guys understand uh, what it's going to take to make these massive investments. I also want to try and convey to the audience that Uh, Even if you're not an investment banker or someone involved in investment, you actually have more influence over this process than you think you do. And I hope that that's a takeaway for you guys at the end of the discussion today. So perhaps we can start with each panelist just saying a couple of words about who they are, what they do for context, starting with Indranil, please. Thank you. Uh, My name is Indranil Ghosh. Um, I've been a sustainable
2: investor for the last decade or so. Uh, Firstly, for a large sovereign fund called uh, Mubadla, where a large amount of their investments were nation-building or uh, socially motivated. Um, And recently, I wrote a book about uh, how to uh, invest sustainably to uh, achieve a sustainable economic development along the lines of the, the UN SDGs. And I also have a podcast called Impact Unicorns, which is all about transformative companies that could both become unicorns, but also have amazing impact
3: along the way. Hi, I'm Diane Essen. I work at Bailey Gifford, which is an investment management firm based over in Edinburgh. We are predominantly an equity investment house, and we have clients that range from pension um, pension pots, so any, any of you that have a pension, we might manage some of your pension money, or charities, or endowment, uh, university endowment funds that need to grow their their money there, um, and so they'll invest with us, and then we will make decisions and decide which companies to invest in.
4: Hi everyone, Manish Karani. First of all, good to see everyone without a screen in front of me. <laughs> so so great great to see everyone. Um, founder uh, and CEO of MVK Group. Um, We are the fund manager of a coalition fund, which specifically focuses on the plant-based space. Um, We specifically look at more consumer brands, um, so the vegan trend, and we've been doing this for around three to four years. Uh, And now we're actually raising our second fund for £100 million, um, and we're looking forward to speaking to everyone about this exciting movement
1: Hi everyone. Uh, William Stormont from up the road, uh, Perth. Um, I wear several hats, but primarily I'm here because in a similar world in my niche, venture capital, um, but really helping companies to do business in China, including clean tech and food tech companies. Um, I'm also a farmer by background, so I've got uh, my own personal interest there and forestry as well. And then uh, probably due to my MBA experience in Oxford a few years ago. I have a great interest in all things impact, and in particular, trying to solve the problem of essentially financing renewable energy infrastructure in emerging markets where investors are less keen to put their capital, uh, as it is being very risky. Thank you all. Uh, so, so as I said, we're going to spend about an hour
0: exploring the what it's going to take to mobilise the capital that's required. To make these net uh, net zero commitments a reality and also to try and give you guys a little bit of insight into into the role that you can play as individuals in this journey. I've broken, broken the discussion down into four sections. Firstly, we're going to look at the, the why and um, what why, why are we making these investments and why should the people who control the capital make the investments, then the how. You know how's it going to happen from a government perspective, from a company perspective, an individual perspective. The where, where does this need to happen, uh, and the who also. Uh, so we're going to we're going to uh, cover from those four angles, and um, we're going to try and use uh, non-financial terms where possible, right, guys? That's what we've agreed to do because we know not everyone in the audience is a finance person. So we'll try and keep it as um, light as possible. And I think are we taking questions from the audience,
5: Martin? Is that yeah, part of sure. the format? Yeah, yeah. I've challenged the audience yeah. to have some tough questions for you.
0: Okay, good. So if you have questions, just uh, are you are you moderating that? Is that a roving mic? Is that the yeah yeah, yeah. roving mic? Okay, great. And then let's kick off. So I, I just want to talk a little bit about the why first. You know, that's a bit of a business cliche, but uh, you know the why of the gargantuan amount of investment that's required to make these commitments a reality. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, a lot of people liken the amount of innovation and capital that's going to be required to make net zero a reality to the space race. But I think it's bigger than that. I think you're probably looking more at the the rebuild after the Second World War. You know, this is a a gargantuan undertaking. Uh, We have the amount of capital we have to mobilize to make this a reality. Is incredible, and like all investments, it's it's about risk and reward. And I think that the risk side of uh, climate change and net zero is very well understood. You know, if if we don't, for example, improve our infrastructure, the lights go off. But the reward side of it has been uh, not compelling for investors. I think uh, up until very recently. You know, if, you know, if you control a investment fund, investing in climate tech, clean tech, is, has not been the top of your list of asset classes in recent years. However, we're starting to see evidence that you can make money as an investor investing in climate tech. Now, and the, the example I love to use is Tesla. I think everybody can relate to Tesla, the electric car manufacturer who just passed a trillion dollar market <coughs> market cap uh, the other day. So, So, you know, Businesses like that are starting to move the dial on the risk-reward equation for investors. But to help um, quantify the, the sums involved here and the behaviour that needs to change to make these investments happen, I want to firstly invite Indranil to maybe just paint a picture for us of where where is this capital coming from and, and where, is, where is it currently directed to and, 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 and how much do we need to shift to make net-zero a reality. Yeah, um,
2: so you're right, it, it is a, a gargantuan scale and probably bigger even than the space race or even you know, the reconstruction post-war because it's more like, I think, the early part of, late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, when we were laying you know, electrical cable, telephone lines, expanding the amount of roads, building you know, cities of, of a size that had never been seen before. It's that scale of um, you know, industrial and infrastructure development. Um, but you know, electrification is a process that's been going on for you know, 150 years now. The little twist that we have is we have about 10 to 15 years to make some of the big transformations you know, in all the different sectors that we've talked about and to decarbonize them, which means a lot of retrofitting, but actually also building a lot of new stuff on a, on a very enormous scale. And if you look at the, the UN sustainable development goals there's really a lot of this retrofitting and building new stuff to make things you know uh, greener enhancing you know natural resources uh, biodiversity the oceans and there's another set of stuff which is around again usually building new stuff or using technology to bring up the standard of living of people who are you know low income whether it's in emerging markets or developed markets, so improving education, healthcare, and all these kind of services, which is also requiring the build up of human capital as well. So the sustainable, you know, transition transformation actually is a gigantic task. And if you look at the UN estimates of how much it's going to take to just implement the SDGs, they reckon it's somewhere around five to seven trillion dollars of investment every year for at least the next ten years. Yeah. So to put that into context, uh, the global economic output is about $80 trillion. So you think that's a big number compared with the the 5 to 7. But then you remember that the amount of government spending, taxes, is only about $20 globally. Mm -hmm. And there's very little of that tax base in emerging markets, actually. So if you were to just increase public spending to fund the 5 to 7 trillion, you're talking about 20, know 30. Percent increase in taxes across the board everywhere. So obviously that's not going to happen. So then you think, okay, maybe I can take some of that tax money and spend it more efficiently. Certainly can do that. Um, But you're still going to be left with quite a large investment gap to plug. So where can you look? So there could be corporate investment. The problem with corporate investment is that you know markets and companies are set up to think more short term, more in smaller size of investment than the massive scales that we need yeah. and they're not very comfortable taking early stage risk, whether it's on technology yeah. or whether it's on sort of a new way of doing things, right? So what you need is private, private wealth, capital. private capital yeah. to come in and blend with the, the yeah. public support to, to plug that gap. And fortunately, there's 20 to, sorry, 200 trillion of private wealth in the world, yeah. so to divert a small amount of that is what we need to do but there are a lot of barriers to to making that happen which we can talk about if you're enjoying impact unicorns don't forget to like subscribe and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the podcast if you would like to review the show go to the apple podcast mobile app or itunes to leave a rating and review
0: right so, so I think that's a great point. So, in summary, uh, government can't do this on their own; it, it would cripple us from a, a tax burden. So, so private capital has a huge role to play. Now, for private capital, for private investors to choose to do this, they have to believe that there's going to be a return. I think that. Uh, so, I think two things have changed in that respect since the since the Paris deal. Um, I, to make private. Investors more inclined to invest in uh, sustainability. I think, like the first one is that uh, the the owners of the capital, the pension funds, etc. If if an in, if an investment manager is not investing with a sustainability agenda, then they're not getting access to capital anymore, or not getting access to as much capital anymore. That's a very new new thing, relatively speaking, and. If if investment managers have to increase sustainability focus in order to continue to enjoy access to capital, they're going to do it. And then the second thing I think that I mentioned with Tesla is that people are starting to see that you can, in fact, make money investing in sustainability and and ESG. So what I'd like to do is, um, starting with Diane, maybe just go through each of the guys and say that for your for your part of the financial services industry, do you, do you see the needle moving in terms of investor sentiment to deploy more capital towards sustainability? Because each of the panellists live in a different part of the financial services industry. So starting with
3: that. Absolutely. So as I said, our uh, clients are pension funds, charities, universities, and, and our clients have been guiding us Um, with where they want their capital to be deployed. Um, And that's a key part that I think we will come back to in terms of the voice of our clients and how important that is for us to be able to make decisions around that. So it's very, we're getting very strong messaging from our clients of they want their capital to go into something that they do see as sustainable. Fortunately, that is very much aligned with how Bailey Gifford has operated for over 100 years. We take a 10-year investment time horizon as our sort of baseline. And so that's why even before clients started saying we want sustainable investments, we invested in Tesla when it was coming out of the cradle. We invested in Zoom before COVID hit just because we saw or not me personally, I, I didn't make that investment, I, I've been there five we years. You would be here. Yeah. <laughs> Some of our other investors you know, really saw that. They looked 10 years ahead, they looked 20 years ahead, and they thought, what's the future going to look like? And when you get to those long-term horizons, yeah. you know, the convergence between shareholder returns and other stakeholders really starts to come together. Um, you're not going to have a successful business in 10 or 20 years if you're not thinking about these things. So it's really inherent to how we at Bailey Gifford have been trained to invest and how to think about investment opportunities, very much thinking about the long-term growth and sustainability is such a crucial part of that.
4: Manish? Yeah, I mean, ours is slightly different um, in that we, we traditionally manage family money, family wealth, Um and it's been very interesting because over the last 10 years of me having conversations with very wealthy families who are often first generation, and they sort of created their wealth from traditional assets, so property, uh, healthcare, um, before really technology was was there. So they kind of had that struggle of building billion-pound-dollar businesses. Um, and then kind of 2008 hit, 2009 hit, and then suddenly companies like Ubers, like the Teslas, are building businesses which they've taken 40, 50 years to create in four, five years. Yeah. And I think what's also happened is this first generation of wealth, they've had children. And the children have seen this. And the children have always been much more passionate and interested in quicker gains and more interested in the Teslas and the Zooms and the Ubers. Yeah. So now what's happened is the shift, and I think COVID has played a big role in this as well, in that they've been telling their parents or their board, we should be diversifying out of traditional, we should be diversifying. And then suddenly COVID's hit, and a family that's made all of its money from property suddenly saying, actually, maybe I should have listened to them. So now what's happened is when we're having conversations with family offices to to invest with us or or, or funds, it's a much easier conversation um, because, first of all, there's been a complete change in how wealth is created now, so we don't really t- need to sell too much. Um, and I think second of all, the next generation are much more passionate about making a difference and making money in a different way. They don't care about 10%, 15 20% per annum on a property transaction because they know that that's kind of been taken care of from someone else and they'll get that in their bank accounts anyway, in all honesty. They want to be part of something which is going to be the next Beyond Meat, the next mm-hmm. Oatly and they are so passionate about this uh, and removing animals from the food chain. They're, they're, they don't want to see They don't want to see animal cruelty. They want to be around in the next 40, 50, 60 years. And they're kind of in a position where their parents might not be, but they don't want to leave a world like this. Yeah. So for us, it's a very, very... When we're having conversations, it's much less ROI, IRR-driven now. And it's more, I just like being in a relationship with you and I want to support you. And a lot of these uh, individuals... Want to get involved, they want to, be, they want to be involved because they're investing in a brand like an Opie, and then they're going to see it on the shelf.
3: Yeah. And that's
4: a buzz. Yeah. So for us, it's just a very much, it's, it's become easier
1: um, over the last two to three years. Um, so yeah, I think what Manish is speaking to as well, and actually so Diane also sort of hinted at it as well, is that I don't think it's unique to this, but it's accelerated in this moment and for the last sort of 10 years, there is a real consumer element to what's going on here. So and actually, it actually did probably start with wealthy families in the USA, uh, the Rockefellers, and things of that, influencing the likes of Harvard. You have know, their you know, their university endowment fund yeah. to drop oil entirely, that's right. not overnight, but close to it. Things like that sent a massive signal, and that has started this sort of snowball, which has begun to build and build and build. Plant-based meats, other such things. The consumer is the person that's eventually driving that. There are other things at play: regulation, government. But the consumer is playing a massive role in this uh, transition.
0: Thank you. And Randall, did you want to also chime in? Yeah, I thought
2: um, some of these points uh panelists are making are really excellent. Um, the way I look at system change, which is one of the you know, discussions we had earlier, is that three things need to come together. There needs to be a change of social attitudes, yes. there needs to be a change of political and other you know, social institutions, and the third thing is technology <coughs> enablement. Yeah. Now, Technology is usually the easiest out of the three, ironically. I mean, just think, we've had video conferencing technology for a while, but didn't was really widespread. But now COVID hits and the penetration has gone through the roof. So it was never really the barrier. It was, more often than not, it's the social attitudes and the political institutions that are the barrier. So what's happening now is really interesting, which is that, you know, we've technocratically, in a way, thought about what climate change means and what you need to do about it. Yeah. And the the outcome of it has been very long-term policy changes. So net zero by 2050, European Green Deal by 2030, 2035 to cut by half, basically. Now, when you have political agendas and policies that are long-term, then social attitudes and also financial investments suddenly have to be long-term because policies being set to price carbon, to tax emissions and all of this, you know, on a schedule... That's going out into the future. And the more specific that schedule becomes, the more that companies have to transform what they're doing, and there's more opportunity also for innovation for new companies to figure out how to transform the economy. And this is why when you get to you know the investors, the long-term and big investors like pension funds, yeah. they now have to think pretty long term about how to change their portfolio yeah. from being, you know, mainly carbon-based to something yes. that's much more you know decarbonized and socially impactful. Now, as I'm raising a fund right now for you know, a billion euros to invest in sustainable infrastructure, what I actually see as I talk to LP or investor after investor, is that yes, there's some sophisticated ones that have you know, got this and are implementing it. But the vast majority are at the stage of, I need to tell my board I've been asked by my board to figure out how to shift this out like, capital allocation. And have to report back to them early next year. Yes.
1: So that's the stage we're at. Most of the capital is still figuring out what they need to do yes, and how to deploy And desperately looking for frameworks and pathways yes. to do that. Yeah, and, and you know,
0: sustainability can mean a hundred different things to a hundred different people. Too. Okay, great. So I, that was about the why, and my takeaway there is that I think the why is now well understood by the investment community and capital markets. I think we're over the why, I think generally that box is checked. I do think um, Millennials and Gen Z's have played a huge role in shifting the why, uh, because they are the consumers, pension payers and voters of today and tomorrow. So if, if you're in government or, or you're managing capital or you're selling a product, these are your you know, customers, voters, uh, pension fund payers. So I think, I think we've got the why. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the how. Now, now that we get the, the, the rationale for, for doing it, let's talk about the practicality because it is a phenomenal undertaking. You know, we're really hoping for aggressive commitments in the next two weeks out of COP, and that's wonderful, but then we actually have to do it. And, you know, it, it's not going to be easy So I want to just touch with the panel, a little bit freeform, you know, three groups that are in my mind, what government can do um, for the how, you know, in terms of policy, regulation, tax breaks, carbon taxes, what companies can do in terms of their corporate VC, procurement policies, voluntary carbon markets, uh, and not greenwashing. Let's, Let's touch on greenwashing. And individuals, you know, what what can individuals do at the ballot box, with their pension fund, with their consumer choices? So my questions for the panel, or my question the panel, is within those groups, who do you think is doing enough? Who who who's letting the side down? Who's not doing enough right now? And and what should they be doing different? I don't know if he wants to take that one. Yeah. Well, I'll
3: I'll give a stab. So I where I want to start with this one is. You know, Thinking about sustainable finance, I think there is, at least for me before I came into an investment, a uh, thought of, we'll just leave it to the experts. And I think it's really important to remember that if you have a pension, if you have savings, if you have a stocks and shares ISA, even if you have savings in a bank, you are an investor. And where your capital goes really influences outcomes. As we're talking about, it can go to technology. It can go to larger companies and really influence their ability to access further capital. And so where you put your money is, I mean, collectively, it's a huge impact. Um, And you have a choice. You can invest passively, so you can give your money to a benchmark, but then you can only influence through capital allocation, And what's great about investment, especially on the sustainability angle, because it's so subjective, is you can also engage with companies. As a shareholder, you have voting rights, and you can either, if you would directly invest in a company with your pension, that is your right to interact with a company, you're a part owner, you you can and should use your voice to influence how they um, practice their operations. Um, a lot of people, I mean myself included, don't have time in our daily lives to go around and analyze every company and talk with management teams. So we outsource. I outsource my pension to yeah. well to Bailey Gibbard, um, but you know then we professionally can then speak with companies and engage with them as a you know as that voice of the people. It's another voice at the table, which is so important. You've got shareholders you've got customers you've got governments and if you give up that right to interact or engage or if you just give your capital to any investment firm that you don't know you don't know yeah. their process for sustainability i mean if, if sustainability matters to you it really behooves you to look into who's managing your money and where they're directing it do, does that apply do, do your values align with well, that I investment that, manager that's
0: a great point i'd like to go a little deeper on that actually because while you were talking I was remembering that you know things like Robinhood and Cash App we're now seeing fintech innovation which is putting the consumer in control of where their capital goes within stocks and you know William mentioned that consumers are driving a lot of this stuff in the capital markets you know my son's 12 and on Cash App he's got a stock portfolio that he manages on the school run Swear to God, it's true. Uh, and, and Tesla is like his favorite stock. It's like that, my Tesla. So, so I think although we're in an investment panel and we work in that industry, to Diane's point, everyone's an investor today more so than ever because because of this innovation. I don't know if anyone wanted to add to what Diane was saying. I think that's a really good
2: place to start, which is, you asked frame the question, who's letting the side down? Yes. Um, maybe what's letting the side down, I don't want to point fingers as to who, is just, just the level of education. Yeah. And the, the way media can help us become aware and more active in all of these places where we have leverage.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So going back to numbers, you know, there's $55 trillion of consumer spending globally every year yeah. out of that eighteen. So that's a lot of leverage, you know, what you buy and having more awareness of, you know, where it came from, what the supply chain was, how green it is, how socially inclusive it is, is a really good way to have a big impact, because right? yeah. we all spend money. How we invest, it's another great area. Obviously, where we vote or who we vote for, not just at a, at a national level, but at a very local level. Yeah. This is really important because that's probably where you have the most leverage, actually, with, with your vote is at the community level, even you know, on a school board. How are your children being educated at that level? So there's a whole level of activism, which yeah. I think needs to be, you know, we can all hold ourselves accountable for. Um, now, when, when you have that kind of social activism, it's very difficult politically to ignore that. So Greta Thunberg goes and does her amazing stuff, and the next week, Theresa May has net zero 2050. Yes. You know, an extinction rebellion, you know, whatever you think about them, has an effect as well. right? So now you've got legislation. Then you go through the cycle I mentioned before. You've got legislation, then you've got repricing of natural assets. So carbon is expensive. That means peat, you know, bogs that have been, as we talked about this morning, have, have degraded, suddenly become a valuable asset, and an investable one when you put regulation around it, and so on and so on.
0: Guys,
2: anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I would going to be
4: a bit blunt here. I think, especially in the plant-based space, if you look, I think governments have let the area down. Um, I think there's a lot of subsidi- sub- subsidies that have gone into the dairy farming space, and they continue to, to do so. Um, and but I'm also very very proud in that if you look at sort of the, the plant-based space specifically, you know you. We, we, if you have a sort of a, a, a vegan chocolate versus a non-vegan chocolate, mm-hmm. the non-vegan chocolate will, will generally be cheaper because of the the, the government support and, and obviously some of the things that might be inside it, versus the vegan chocolate, which is more expensive because it just naturally doesn't have the support from the government to to, to bring the price down. But actually, so what what we've seen from our portfolio is that they've had to really bring taste at the forefront to beat the the, the the main competitors that have had this kind of advantage. And I feel like over the last three, four years, you know, you look at Oatly, you look at Beyond Meat, you know, investment company, we have Love Raw, it's a chocolate brand. We've got a Paretsa, we've got a pizza brand. And a lot of people would go to these brands and comfortably eat this every day rather than going to you know, your, your, your non-plant based. I think that's got to be good for the
0: consumer, Manish, because what you're saying is, the product needs to be superior to overcome the economic disadvantage. Exactly. And, and I'm just thinking of Tesla again, I know I'm a little bit obsessed with Tesla, but
1: it is a really nice car to drive, and it's a really good-looking car. So, the, the role of the consumer, though, is, is complex here, because there are a lot of the decisions that we make, a lot of things that we like to have, which maybe aren't so good. Yes. Uh, so I think education. there's, there's a lot, again, comes of to education yes. and us making difficult decisions, which will, because essentially the way the sort of financial world works in my very simplified sort of view is you have consumption, which equals demand. Yes. You have demand, you have essentially a value exchange. And that is what investors are trying to find. And well, yes. that's where the money flows towards. right. Yes. So the money will flow eventually towards consumption. So where consumption goes, the money will follow. And that's where we have made a lot of progress. But the, the difficult thing about the transition that we're making now yeah. is that there are some areas where the money needs to go where consumption does, maybe doesn't want to go. Yes, That's really difficult. What does that mean? That means that you know, multiple things need to happen. It means that someone needs to so organise a system and a series of incentives that enable capital to go there, yeah. to go where maybe it doesn't want to go. Yeah. It could, in the long run, be yeah. actually a good place to be, yeah. but that's obviously where the, the risk and reward is a different okay. thing. But what, what
4: I would say is, I think social media has played a big role in this. Yes, I if you're say. saying, okay, how do we kind of break that barrier down? Social media has done that. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It, You know, it it is
1: bigger than
0: yeah,
4: you know, than a lot of establishments.
1: Um, yeah, I would also then have a concern about greenwashing then Yeah, let, yeah. That's well, I would, well, I let's touch on
0: greenwashing then, because we, we wanted to bring it up. There's it was, it was actually Diane's point originally. If so, let let's let her have her say. Yeah. Well,
3: <laughs> oh, gosh, I wanted to
0: talk. But I well, 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 let, 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 well, Before before you did that. I'm just conscious we're rattling through here. We haven't had any questions, Martin. Can we nudge some people in the audience to? to well,
5: uh, on my engage, please. The back? Can I throw one at the moment? And sure. it bridges the why and now the how. Yes. Is that there's a disconnect between what you were saying and what the perception? I don't mean well, like the Perception yeah. is out there because your people feel unheard and unlistened and yes. abandoned, yes. apathetic and anxious. And yet, what you're saying is they've got all the power at yes. The hand. Yes. So either media is doing something horrible, yeah. or or. The messages and get out of there about finance and the opportunities for finance. Finance isn't just a big bunch of people, it's not Elon, yep. just going to the moon, and all of that stuff. There's also a business behind there that's, that's a force for goodness or purpose, I don't think it's being fed out. And the how was, what's the role of media and all this then? Is it just to perpetuate fear or is it to mobilise around hope? And if there are any media experts in this room today, I want to have a cup of tea with you. Because you've got a very important role to play. There was a
3: question up the yeah, back, sure. there was a microphone
5: coming to you, I think. Oh, James.
3: Thank you Martin. Um, it's just a, a question. So the private capital system is driven by maximising financial returns yes. and if you accept simplistically that the money that goes in is spare money, then isn't the single metric of maximising returns for people that have spare money part of the problem? Do you see a role for funds whilst the, the invested capital is protected, you're actually maximizing social value as a metric, not just returns
0: for investors. Yeah, so my, my quick answer, and then I'll hand to the panel, would be, uh, in, in my role at Greenbackers, we deal with a lot of what's termed impact funds because there there are, as, as you guys can imagine, there's lots of buckets of capital, private equity funds, venture capital funds, family offices, impact funds. So I do deal with impact funds who will sacrifice absolute financial returns for a more kind of balanced scorecard of maybe social? So, so you know, they'll sacrifice some some hard uh, cash returns for for social change. I have to say though, it's a, it's a tiny minority within within the capital market world. I, I would have a
2: maybe a direct answer to that, which is no. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is following. Um, If you want to go down the route of saying, okay, there are multiple objectives that we have to optimize for, so financial and then all of these other social metrics. First of all, you have to measure those in a standardized way, um, in a way that the measurements are actually accurate and audited. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to then offer, in a simple way, retail investors especially, but even institutional investors, a simple way to figure out how to trade off between the two. Mm If you think about how actual pension fund works, mm-hmm. you know, now you're creating a gigantic headache for these people. Yeah. It's like, "Oh, I have to go to my board and explain how I traded off financial yeah. return for all of these other things." Yeah. It's going to be very, very complicated. And simple things usually work better than complex things. Mm-hmm. So, I think the real answer is society has to revalue these non-financial things yeah. like the environment, you know, uh, the quality of, you know, human capital. In a way, and reflect it in carbon prices, in wages yep. that we give teachers, et cetera, et cetera, so that we're basically recalibrating the value as a society that we put on things through financial metrics, which is salaries, wages, taxes, and so on. And that we, way. Is can, that happening? Do we think that's happening? Is it's that beginning. Happening, right? It's beginning. But you when you mean? have that flow through the system, and it all comes back to then all of that information and all those societal values are reflected in money again. Yeah. And then it's much easier to sort of manage a financial so, portfolio because you're
0: maximizing for profit again. It's it, just profits defined. Do you think the demographic transition to millennials and Gen Zs in positions of influence will assist with that value shift, that societal value Absolutely. shift? So that, that's maybe the, that's
2: maybe Absolutely. the answer. Absolutely. And the other thing that
0: will happen is there will be smaller markets being set up.
2: So crowdfunding and yeah. tokens and things. So there'll be many more ways which you as a, an investor consumer can put your vote yeah. very directly into a private company rather than having to go through a fund yeah. uh, which then goes into investing in a VC fund that then invests in the company, right? There'll be, and you can you know, buy a token for a natural asset, let's say. Yeah. So I think we'll have m- many more channels to invest value, maybe it becomes tokens at some point, but I think the major thing that we need to do is revalue what society actually thinks things are worth.
3: And and I think investors have been burned in the past by good intentions of wanting to invest in technologies that they can see as being part of the solution, but just are not profitable, like Bailey Gifford, we got burned investing in solar panels um, 10 years ago, yeah, yeah. you know, these investment. you know, you, our clients do expect a return on their capital as well, and so we have to really think carefully, of, is there demand for this product, and that is a key part of our analysis, maybe the demand is not going to be there this year, and we accept that, yeah. but we have to have confidence that there's going to be demand in 5 years or 10 years in order to make a return. I think
1: it's also important to acknowledge that the conversation today has been quite UK-oriented. Yeah. Um, this is a global problem. Definitely. And the biggest problems are in the emerging world. Yeah. Uh, and for lots of different reasons. But it's actually the problem, i.e., you know, the climate there has been having hit worse. But also they have, you know, institutions that are, that are newer, less trusted, so investors are less inclined to invest mm. in those areas. And that's where the greatest need is. Then to to come back to the, the question... I think we are fronting up to an awkward inflection point now where the traditional return that investors want globally and the emergence of these new sort of uh, climate and social assets that will be an awkward gap essentially between the traditional return and as these new assets grow and begin essentially to take more and more and return more and that is the the leap of faith that essentially we need to make uh, across the globe. Yeah, you know, people will have to, I think, you know, people will generate less. There could be a step there. You could say it's that, it's like some venture capital, our typical game, where if you do that, if you reach longer term, you'll then be holding much better assets mm-hmm. than, than they appear to be today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the assets, the legacy assets, your well, oil assets, will die off nearly entirely over time. And it's that transition. But there's that awkward middle ground now where that 10% might be 8%, but in the future it could be 12%.
2: Over the past 20 years I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future read my award-winning book Powering Prosperity, a citizen's guide to shaping the 21st century.
0: So, so to summarise, yeah, I think that is happening, I think would be the summary, but it's it's going to take a very long time, but we think it's happening.
5: Martin? I was going to say, can you help us, but probably predominantly me, because everybody here is smarter than me, is that if you're looking for certainty, and I know Bailey Gifford, and no one else in the crystal ball, but three quarters of the world now uh, have targets Scotland's are lit, written in law, so we can't know be 2045 net zero in England. And if you look at that trajectory, that's certain, that's, that's unbreakable, regardless of what happens and um, Tuesday or Wednesday for cop 26th, if they fail to get a Paris agreement sort of thing, uh, that's still that trajectory. So is that not, I'm just, provocatively, is that not enough certainty? for investors to go, but well, there's the destination, let's just get a foot down go there first, get market advantage, and then build that momentum? Or is it what some people would fear is, because of the greenwash thing, folk will just sit back and wait till 2044 and then hit a button and say, well, no one else got there, so why did we bother? So I, th- I think there's an element of leadership, and I know you're all leaders in your space, but is there something more that can be done?
3: Well, that's where I think there is a real role for shareholders to have a voice with... That's us. That's everyone, yeah. And if you outsource, that could be me. I could be representing you. You know, it, it, so we have a voice at this table, as I mentioned, and you know, it is important to society, our clients, you as shareholders, that companies are taking these um, issues into consideration. And we do bring that. You know, it is an increasing part of our conversation with with companies to try and push them in that direction. I will. I think it quite easy pushback to that would be, then why aren't we seeing enough change if we are pushing? You know, it's easy to get frustrated, and I can promise you, going into some of these meetings myself with these management teams of quite big companies, the dinosaurs, as they were talking about before, it can feel really frustrating, sure. but I just want to raise the point there, which comes to the greenwashing yes. element, that I think the you have to have all of these stakeholders working in concert because not just investors getting burned for investing in solar panels too early, companies are getting burned from investing in new technologies or sustainable technologies too early. And you know, they and that could actually be destructive to end goals. So I'll give you an example, you know, Coca-Cola, we could really, you know, bash them over the head for all of the plastic bottling that they create. Um, you know why aren't they taking a big leap well they could they have the capital they could just say you know what we're not going to sell plastic bottles anymore everything's going to be on tap you bring your own bottle maybe they have a you know a milk bottle recycling scene but if they do that do they have enough customers that are on board with that would you accept that would or would people start shifting to pepsi well well, okay i like coke better but Pepsi's more convenient now. There are all these competitive dynamics that mean that sometimes taking a big leap could actually be destructive to your company. And and the value of these companies is still that they are huge. They have huge amounts of capital to deploy to innovation. You know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, they have come up with biodegradable bottles because they have the resource to do that. So it's, I, you know... I'd love to
2: extend your point, if I may, which is I just remember Cristiano Ronaldo uh, during the Euros. Was it the Pepsi or the Coke bottle? I can't remember. But yeah. kind of did that, <laughs> took a bottle of water and did that, and $4 yeah. billion got wiped off. of so My point being, yes, there are these challenges to be dealt with, but this is where the media and leadership comes into play. What we need is more Greta Thunbergs, Cristiano Ronaldo's, and you know all the other people that enjoy a lot of you know social media status and, and publicity to make these uh, tipping point statements, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's going to be tipping point events.
1: Yeah.
3: Right? And, the, and the companies are listening. They they, they yeah. tell us that we would make this change, but we don't have enough buy-in yet from our customers. So it's
5: the chicken and the egg. Yeah. Steve Jobs has said people don't know what they want, to you give it to them, so that yeah. you could i point this yeah. leadership point is just say from now on, this is the only way you're going to drink Pepsi, take it or leave it. Yep. And what yep. I think everybody did, probably got on board. Yeah, that leadership isn't a sticking Sorry, Martin. Sorry.
3: Yep. Okay. So, when it comes to sort of mainstreaming this impact that we can have as individuals, and you know, I'm hearing this again and again, actually, just within the last few months, the number of times this has come up in terms of the impact we can have through our pensions and our investments. But are there sort of um, are there resources that people can use to navigate this world that makes it accessible to them that enables us to have that impact? Because even from my point of view, you know, I've never thought about it. I went home after one of these meetings, went right, I'm now excited to think about what my money could do. I yeah. want to go and put it somewhere and I want to engage with my money in a way I never have. But just knowing where to start, getting, I was, realised I'd have to sit there for we- weeks doing research or pay a lot of money to have some mm-hmm. advice. But, you
0: know, do you see those results being created? Uh, Yeah, I'll start. So I I would would say yes. I would would reiterate, I think there's three levers you've got, not just your capital. I think your consumer choices, your vote, and your capital, all three, us, not you, all of us, um, they're your levers. But, yeah, I think what you're seeing is innovation in the fintech space, financial technology space, where... Investment management used to be this kind of weird, esoteric thing that very specialized people do, and you pay them money to do it. Um, There's a a plethora of apps that are now coming out, and I don't want to promote anyone in particular, I'm a little bit wary about the controls and oversight of them, but, but Robinhood and Cash App are the two that I'm aware of, that anybody can download on their smartphone, and... It's very intuitive and helps you understand. I'm not promoting those apps, to be absolutely clear. But my point is investment management decisions, and we don't want to put Bailey Gifford out of business, of course. But are uh, are being put in the hands of the consumer, that's what's happening in the fintech
3: space. And, well, and so, as we mentioned, our clients are mentioning this more to us. Is this being important? And so, because of that, we are seeing we are producing ourselves and we know our competitors are producing more documents to share with people so if you go on websites of some of the, at least some of the major investment managers i know but i'm sure smaller investors as well will ha- will give you some sense of the process behind what they're doing yeah. because i would actually say There's greenwashing around corporates. There's also greenwashing around investment. And because it says sustainability on the tin doesn't mean it aligns with your personal values of what's sustainable. So understanding, getting a sense of that process as it sounds like you're trying to do, I agree, it's not not the clearest because of all the regulations around us not being able to promote our products. But for instance, we have a blog... Um, I know other investment managers have blogs that are, we're trying to be a bit more outward facing. Um, so hopefully those resources are increasing for you. So can
5: I, pension switch, like you switch, you yes. set up pension switch, so you can go on and put in your details and find out who something should be met up.
2: That's exactly right. So when you think back to the internet and why e-commerce worked initially, It was because there were a few places like Amazon and eBay where you had a trusted environment that you knew things were going to happen in in a proper way, right? The problem that we have in investments, let's just focus on the investment industry, is that there's no set of trusted standards because there's too much information for most people to process about what this company is doing and what that fund is doing. So there needs to be trusted standards so you can say, if I want this, this is a standard stamped way of investing in it. Or, in a parallel track, you need more ways of investing directly yes. in a democratised way,
0: directly into little companies, little assets, little farms, and that's also coming. And, and crowdfunding is, is a form of that. I think Crowdcube and, and Cedars is a form of that. It'd yeah, be great to get more questions, please. So I just wanted to add to oh. that as well. Um, you know, for us... We've
4: got certain things which, as a, as a, as a firm and as, as a you know, the coalition fund, are very important to us. Um, and we've kind of built a team around that. Um, and, for example, if, if an investor does come to us and says, I want to invest 100 million or whatever with you, and they're really financial focus, returns focused, returns focused, we, we just wouldn't take their money, to be honest. Because if we are encouraging that person to invest with us, then that's the type of, uh, that's the type of investor com- investment company we would invest in, would, would attract that as well. And we're not, right? We want to attract people that want to make a difference, and they will go whatever, they'll, they'll do as much as they can to ensure that's the case. And it's not purely about profit. We've, 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 we've done things, for example, like us, a proportion of our carry goes back to animal charities. So and it's it's really pretty straightforward to tell someone well, you're gonna invest with us, we're gonna provide a proportion of our carrier to charities. When we invest in our portfolio companies, we say, in order for, we are allocating some of our profits to animal charities. Fingers crossed, you, you individuals will go and you know sell your business for hundred million. Would you like to also allocate a proportion of your profits to charities? And pretty much every portfolio company that we pick will say yes. So, fine, you know, there are different metrics, there are all these different things, and obviously co-code is very different. You have to look at, uh, you know, a 500-page document, but we've kind of tried to keep it very simple because ultimately, you know, that will transition. Um, and and I should, hate
0: to interrupt you, I'm sorry. sorry. But two minutes left, and I really wanted that question from that lady. Maybe we could get a quick answer to it. Can we have that question just real quick Our last two minutes?
4: I'll try to be quick and just on that greenwashing element and appreciate all the amazing work you guys are doing in this space, but... Um, Given, I think, last year, 72% of ESG-labeled products don't even meet Paris Agreement, um, and nearly 70% of uh, asset managers are worried about greenwashing and of their decision-making. And in the same way that you know retail brands like H&M launch an ethical line that makes you actually more question the rest of their <laughs> value chain and what they're selling, um, do you guys think that we could get to a stage where we're switching around the labeling of sustainable or responsible investing where it's actually only a label when it's the reverse and that the standard is um, you know, an investment or an irresponsible or an unsustainable one and mm-hmm. if so, how far away are we and what do you think would be the main driver of that? Is it the risk from fund managers or is it the regulation that comes to your private sector or to you guys to make sure that you're being robust in the product labels?
1: Okay,
0: maybe may tough in two minutes but anybody want to have a stab at a quick answer? There are some. Okay. Well I think the uh,
2: uh, Standardization is key,
1: um, and I think we have been let down by government on this front. Um, yeah, government always moves slowly, but they've had a lot of warning here, and this sort of conversation going on for quite a long time, and um, you've had the UN SDGs now for quite a long time, and yet they're still really not being sort of taken up uh, across the board. Um, so I think yeah, we really need to push in that direction now. And that means as, you know, some people get burnt, some companies get left behind, so be it. Um, we have a big problem to solve.
3: I would actually maybe directly counter that. I don't think standardization is going to work because we all, there's no universal definition of what is sustainable. So there's no universal definition of what we should invest in that is sustainable. It has to be very bottom up, very company focused. Do you get into the nitty gritty? How do you do the trade off? And an important one is, is it sustainable to invest in a company with a large carbon footprint that is growing? Some of the yeah, benchmarks say no. Actually, but I think
1: it's but a two-way. It, this is a unique problem, which is a unique solution, which is both grassroots and government level. Okay, got to, got to wrap
0: it. But that's okay. great. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I just, do you remember fair trade with the coffee industry? That's what I was thinking of there. So it looks like we're out of time. Um, big takeaway for me is that the people who allocate capital to make these investments happen, they're getting it. They're waking up to it. But more than that, Consumers are actually ultimately influencing the capital markets. I think that's what—that's the real takeaway for us. It just takes a long time with policy and what have you. So we think it's going in the, the right direction, but we think consumers can accelerate it with the behavioural choices they make on their vote, um, their capital and their
5: consumer behaviour. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that has been an amazing session I must say I've, I've made four pages of notes and I'm a dreadful writer <laughs> and everything's been recorded just so as you all know because I've been sitting trying to capture this and the education today has been seismic. that's phenomenal and I think people now have got more information more ammunition more inspiration and more tenacity to make sure we don't just sit back and say the stuff I said this morning you can double repeat after me some of the days there's a change you do yes. so we've got the opportunity to take this stuff in our hands right now so thank you all very much for that as fantastic session
2: thank you if you've enjoyed this episode of impact unicorns don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast and join me next week as i talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies